Well, I want to start by talking about uniformity in the church, particularly how ugly uniformity is. That's what Paul is bringing up in these first few verses that I just read, this idea of uniformity and how this isn't what God gave His church. He did not give uniformity, but He gave diversity. But before we critique uniformity, there needs to be a common definition. So if you have your notes, you can fill in a couple of blanks there for this definition of uniformity in the church. I'm going to define uniformity as the result of prescribed extra-biblical standards. The result of prescribed extra-biblical standards for all members of a church in order to reduce varieties of expressions and convictions. The result of prescribed extra-biblical standards for all members of a church in order to reduce varieties of expressions and convictions. When someone is concerned about uniformity in a church, what they're really concerned about is conformity, that everyone be on the same page regarding a certain standard that's set before the people. And the type of uniformity that you usually find in this sense is an extra-biblical type of uniformity, an extra-biblical standard, or you could say a sub-biblical standard, where someone is saying, yeah, I know the Bible doesn't specifically address this topic this way, but let me tell you how you should be. And that's true for everyone, and we're all expected to conform. And that's not good. That's not what God has given His church. In fact, I am going as far to say that it's ugly, And I'll even say it's a monstrosity. I think that's how Paul presents it here. Look at verse 17 with me again. Look at this picture he gives us. If the whole body were an eye. That's gross, right? I think we can all agree that that's pretty gross. Verse 19, if if they were all one member, where would the body be? Can you imagine a a quote-unquote body made up of just fingers? That would be weird, wouldn't it? And as I was thinking about the illustration 17, if the whole body were an eye and what that would look like, I was thinking about this eye with arms and legs walking around, you know, that would be kind of strange. That's how I drew people when I was little. I forgot that they had torsos, so I would just draw a face with arms coming out where their ears should be and legs coming out of their chin. But he doesn't say they have arms and legs. He just says, if the whole body were an eye. And then I got to thinking, I've actually seen that before. I was on a business trip a few years ago in Dallas, and they have such a thing. There's a, a whole eye that's just in a field. We were walking around after dinner one night, and I, didn't, I don't know where this came from. I don't know who did this or why they did it, but I thought, that's weird. And then I had to get closer, so there's another picture. And look at that thing. Monstrosity, am I right? Ugly, if the whole body were an eye. What, can you imagine if we were just all eyeballs rolling around here, And those are kind of sticky, so they pick up like lint and paper clips and stuff. Ugly, isn't it? Ugly. If the whole body were an eye. Oh, gross. Well, that's uniformity for you. And that's what Paul is saying we need to reject. We need to embrace diversity because uniformity is just this nasty monstrosity. Well, let me help answer the question, where does uniformity come from? Now that we've defined it and seen how ugly it is, where does it come from? Well, let me give you one word, pride. Uniformity comes from pride. It's 
when you consider that your approach, your particular approach to life or your approach to ministry is the only right and good way. And let me give you a little thought experiment to see, uh, you know, if you guys are as twisted as I am and you think about the world this way sometimes. But have you ever stopped to consider what the world would be like if everyone was just like you? What stores would close? For some of you, all that would be left would be like Mavericks and Smiths and the dollar store. That would be it, right? <laughs> Everything else would just be needless. Like, I, I walk around sometimes and I see stores and I think, who goes to that store? <laughs> I, I don't even know what they sell in there. That's weird. What, what music would just fade into oblivion if everyone was just like you? What movies wouldn't exist? For me, there would just be documentaries and 90s sitcoms. That's all TVs would play. Isn't that an interesting thing? What products would go out of existence if everyone was just like you? Imagine that world. That's a boring world, isn't it? (laughs) That's a very boring world. If we were all exactly the same, that's a sad world. If everyone was exactly the same, if we were just walking around like robots, pre-wired for all the dispositions that we have, that were just exactly the same, all the convictions, all the expressions were exactly the same... That's ugly. Now think about having that mindset and imposing it on others in the church. Well, this is my approach to this, and you have to be like me. That's uniformity. You have to think this way because that's the way I think, and that's the right way to think. You have to do this this way because that's the right way, and how do I know that? Well, that's how I do it, so I know it's right. Oh, man, how ugly. From a leadership perspective, this means control, doesn't it? Some of you perhaps have been a part of churches or organizations where everything was dictated down to the letter because they just wanted control over the people who were a part of that organization, where the leaders are more like tyrants. They don't lead by example. They don't lead with love. They just dole out rules and and standards and expect everyone to conform because freedom is scary. When people are given freedom to think and live and in major areas, well, they might end up disagreeing with you, and that's scary. But Paul here is saying that diversity is good. In fact, uniformity is scary. It's the monstrosity. And don't you know it, that desire for extra-biblical or sub-biblical uniformity, that's used by the devil to divide the church. When a bunch of people get together and they all have their own opinions and they all think that their opinions are the right opinions or their approach to ministry or their approach to life is the right way or their giftedness is the best giftedness and everyone should have this giftedness. Don't you know that the enemy uses that against the church? Creates divisions, creates factions. So we've defined uniformity. I've given you an idea of where uniformity comes from, pride. Let's answer the question, where does uniformity lead? Two words, more pride. (laughs) Uniformity only leads to more pride because here's what happens when you find yourself in a system uh, that's all about uniformity or conformity. You're either going to be really good at meeting people's standards, and that's going to puff you up. You're going to get really a big head because I'm really good at meeting these standards. I can keep all the rules. Or you're going to realize that you're not good at that, and you're going to be really good at making your own standards. (laughs) Well, I can't do that, so let me just adjust that to what I'm already good at. And I'm going to make my own set of rules about what is right and what is good. You're either going to be really good at conforming to what other people have said, or you're going to be good at moving goalposts around so that way you look good. 
And don't you know this is what happens in every false religion? It creates this competitive environment where everybody has to be seen as the right, perfect, good one. I want to be seen by everybody else as having it all together. And that's what extra-biblical uniformity does. That's what conformity does. It's ugly. It's counter to God's design. It exalts man. Either we do it to ourselves or other people stroke our egos. And it creates a competitive environment in the church. And that is not the way it's supposed to be. You might think in your natural state, well, diversity would create competition. If everyone just did the same thing, there would be no competition. But the opposite is true. The opposite is true. When you create a standard, we're all competing about who can keep the standard the best. That's not the way it should be. But diversity should exist in harmony. That's our teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's one body with many members. Our members are different, but we're one body. There's diversity and harmony and unity all at the same time. And so as we think through this, we need to really consider how this plays out in the church. Because if you get this area wrong, you're messing with something that's very precious to God, His people, His body, the way we are to live. And our goal should be with this, as it is with pretty much everything, and this is a quote from Tom Askell, we want to be as broad as the Bible is broad, where the Bible is broad, and we want to be as narrow as the Bible is narrow, where the Bible is narrow. And so we want to allow for great diversity where the Bible allows for great diversity. And we want to be narrow and we want to be firm on certain things where the Bible is narrow and firm on certain things. And we recognize that diversity is much better than uniformity. This is God's way. It's His design for His church. And when we rightly follow it, we're protected from a competitive environment that destroys the body. So in Contrast to ugly uniformity, let's consider delightful diversity. Do you like that I gave you alliterations today? Ugly uniformity and delightful diversity. So again, Paul is concerned for diversity, for mutual dependency being upheld and cherished in the church. And when you think about diversity in the church, what's really at the heart of that is mutual dependency, and we're going to see that in our text today. But first, I want to answer the question, where does diversity come from? We answered where uh, uniformity comes from. It comes from pride. What about diversity? Go back to verse 4 with me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the origin of diversity. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Where does diversity come from? Diversity comes from the diverse God, the Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father. You see that in verses 4, 5, and 6. God is not one person. God is three persons. He is one being, but He is three persons. And we see a parallel to a degree in the church that we are one body, yet many members. Our diversity comes from God. We talked about uh, in that message, we discussed this idea that in all of creation, we see a reflection of the one and the many. We see great unity in creation, but we also see great diversity in creation. And we err when we just see one or the other, but they coexist in the same way that the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-eternal. All three are God. That's where diversity comes from. But let's define diversity now. 
Diversity comes from God, but what is diversity in the church? Well, unlike God, diversity in the church is mutual dependency. We have a mutual dependency on each other. And this is a foundational element of body life in the church. Let's read verses 21 to 25 in our text today and see this mutual dependency. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So diversity is mutual dependency. We can't look at any other member of the body and say, I have no need of you. And that's the big idea that Paul's getting across here is that all members have a need for each other. That's his emphasis is our need for each other. And that's without exception. That is absolutely without exception. You may think, well, what if you have a certain level of gifting? Then at that point, you don't need the rest of the body. You just maybe need a couple other members in your life. Because you're so gifted, you're so talented, you're so skilled, you're so mature, you're so spiritual, whatever. Not true. All members need all members. Or you might think, well, what about that, that one member of the body? You know him or her, fill in the blank. We could get along fine without that one. No, not so. All members are in need of all members without exception. This is God's design. Remember verse 18. This is really important as we think through this passage. This is the the, like plaque. If you're going to put one of these verses on a plaque to get the big idea, this is it. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If we keep that in mind, we will recognize our need for each other because God's the one who put us together. And He didn't give us anything that we don't need. And He didn't leave anything out. He's given us all that we need in each other, without exception. And Paul here in this section, verses 21 to 25, is putting a particular emphasis on the weaker and less honorable members as necessary to the body, that they absolutely are necessary. You may have caught in verse 22 an interesting phrase. He says, much truer. Look at that in verse 22. On the contrary, it is much truer. Now, something's either true or it's not, right? <laughs> uh, you can't have something be a little true. It's either true or it's not. Yeah, it's an interesting phrase, and I like the way some other translations put it. You could say, to a great degree, or in a very real sense, all members are vital. No member can say to another, I have no need of you. So think of your little toe. This is a good example. That little guy there you have on each of your feet. I think all of you have one of those on each of your feet. Uh, I, I know you well, but maybe not that well. Um, imagine going without that little guy. You might think, well, it's just so tiny and insignificant, I could get along fine. Well, try a sprint without your little toes. See how you'll do. Try a sprint with your little toes sometime and see how you do. Uh, but try getting around without those little toes. You might think, well, they're weak. 
but they're not. They're necessary. And we see here, too, that Paul is addressing our perceptions. Did you catch that in verse 22 and verse 23? Look at 22. The members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Seem to be. That's our perception of them. And verse 23 maybe a little more explicit. Those members of the body which we deem less honorable based on our perception of those members. He's going to address those and we're going to get to it, and we're going to come back to that, so take note of it for now. Uh, but for the moment, I want to define weaker and less honorable. Verse 22, he talks about the weaker, and verse 23, he talks about the less honorable and the less presentable. As we think about weaker members and what that means, we first need to recognize, of course, that this is our shared identity as Christians at a fundamental level. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul said that, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And that means all Christians. If you have been saved by God, God is saying, you were weak, and I've put you into my family. I've saved you and placed you in, in my church to shame the strong of the world. It's our shared identity, and the Corinthians weren't living this way. The Corinthians really needed to be rejected in that area because they had grown, certain factions of them at least, had grown to think, we're not that weak. We're pretty good. We're pretty strong. We've got, we've got it together. But Paul said all the way back in chapter 1, our common identity, if nothing else, is that in Christ we're strong, but on our own we are weak. That's our identity as believers. But Paul here is talking in our verse today, in verse 22, he's talking about weakness in comparison. And so as you get all the members together and they're all made strong in Christ, which is the spiritual truth, some of the members can start thinking, well, they're stronger than others still that they're the strong group of Christians, and this other group of Christians are the weak ones. And it's likely that in using this analogy, Paul had the internal organs in mind, because remember, this is directly tied to the human body when he's using this illustration. On the contrary, he says, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. It seems like he's probably referencing the weak parts of our body even our internal organs. Think about some of those. <clears throat> Maybe everybody but my wife who starts to get lightheaded in these kinds of conversations, but your gallbladder. Some of you have had issues with your gallbladder probably, and you know what it does, but those of you who haven't had issues, what does your gallbladder do? When's the last time you thought about your gallbladder? What about your appendix? Do you know they've actually started to discover some purposes for our appendix? You know, for a long time, we just thought it's an extra part but it actually has a function. Do you know what it is? Do you ever think about it? How about your spleen? That's a weird one. When's the last time you thought about your spleen? Well, we don't think about them, but we need them. Even though they're, in one sense, very weak. These are very sensitive parts of our body, aren't they? Just a slight inflammation or slight pressure placed on these organs causes visceral pain. Too much or too little of certain nutrients can mess with these parts of the body, can't they? They're weak, but can you go without them? Paul's making a point here. They seem to be weaker, but they're necessary, and so are certain members of Christ's body. They may seem to be weak, but they're necessary. And it's important to note, too, as we think about the connection to the church, that 
Weakness is a true spiritual condition that some have in the church. Back in chapter 8, we won't turn there, but back in chapter 8, Paul talked about weak Christians who stumble easily in certain situations. There are certain Christians who are weak, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I think Paul is talking about in our judgment as we look around and we rank and file believers in the church by importance or by giftedness or whatever, which is just a sick thing to do, but as we do it, we can start to you know, develop a cutoff line in our thinking that, well, if you're not this gifted, if you're not this important, you're weak. In baseball, it's called the Mendoza line. If you don't bat over 200, you're weak. And perhaps some people are viewing the church that way in Corinth. And of course, some are today, judging people based on appearances and based on outward fruit, which we should never do. So the idea here is if you consider one to be weak, well, first of all, you may be wrong. You may be very wrong. You may be dead wrong. But even so, you need to consider that person necessary because all members of the body are needed. The body exists as a whole, and we can't go without any of our members. And if you think someone's weak, help. Don't sit back and judge, but help. We see this over and over and over again In the New Testament, help the weak, help the weak. So first of all, know you may be wrong. Second of all, consider your thinking, recognize that person as necessary. And thirdly, help, don't judge, help. That's the weaker. And then he talks about in verse 23, the less honorable. I'll read verse 23 again. He says, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. So there's a tie-in between the less honorable and the less presentable, and he's saying with our human bodies, we bestow more honor and we make the less presentable members more presentable. It's likely that he has in mind our whole torso region. We cover this region, we should cover this region, and we make sure that our less presentable members are more presentable in that way. You think about the less honorable in the body of Christ those who just seem out of place, the less presentable members, those that we deem to be out of place, those who we might describe as an outdoor cat trying to live at peace inside with all the inside cats. Who are the outdoor cats in here? Raise your hand. (laughs) Let's see. How's our self-awareness? We need to be careful about our perceptions, don't we? This has to do with comparing again Some in Corinth were looking at themselves, looking at their group and saying, we are the more honorable members. Oh, nasty, ugly. That's not the way it should be. And then there are the less honorable, less presentable ones. It's not the way it should be. There's a temptation when we view people this way in the church. There's a temptation to hold back honor from these people until they earn it. We consider them less honorable. There's a temptation to make them prove themselves worthy, which is a very anti-gospel way of going about relationships. Our relationships in the church are to reflect the gospel and that we show grace, which is undeserved favor. So as with the weak, when we consider certain people as less honorable or less presentable, we again need to recognize that we might be wrong, but also that they're necessary. The body cannot do without its less presentable members. Even the members that are less presentable, less honorable, 
are necessary. And we have to make an effort as a body to intentionally consider them as worthy and show honor to them. Meaning that we love them, we care for them, we serve them, we build them up in the faith, we seek to encourage them in any way that we can. And as we consider the weaker and the less honorable, again, going back to this idea of our perceptions, we need to be so careful not to exalt our perceptions of other people. Go back to chapter 4 with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and look at the Corinthians' perception of Paul and the other apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul's using some sarcasm here with this church. And he says in chapter 4, verse 9, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Here's where his sarcasm kicks in. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak. There's that perceiving them as weak factor. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. There's the less honorable idea. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul was addressing their perceptions there, wasn't he? You consider us weak, the scum of the world, but you're strong and distinguished and honorable, though we are without honor. Can you imagine being rebuked in such a way by this apostle? Perhaps some of us need to be rebuked in our thinking and take this important lesson, not to exalt our perceptions of others in the church but to consider each one as necessary and vital and equally important in the sight of God who has placed the body together, who has put the body together just as He desires. That's our view of the church. That needs to be our view of the church. And so in recognizing our mutual dependency on one another, we must act. We're instructed here to actively fight against our perceptions. In every church, at all times, this will be an issue because we're a bunch of simultaneously justified sinners. Simul justice at peccator, simultaneously, at the same time, justified and sinner. And here we are told to live together, to be one body together, to care for one another. And we are going to constantly have to fight against these perceptions. And we recognize, too, in the realm of spiritual gifts, remember that's the greater context for Paul's statements here in chapters 12 to 14. In the context of spiritual gifts, there is a natural divide between the noticeable gifts and the quiet gifts, aren't there? There's just a natural divide there. There are upfront type ministries and there are behind-the-scenes type ministries. In the same way that there's a difference between your eyes and your belly button, there's a difference between these members and these giftings. And the answer isn't to treat the belly button like an eye. That would be a strange pair of sunglasses, and I don't know what you would do with, with it with makeup, ladies, but let's not do that. That's not the answer. But the answer is to 
consider each one necessary, for each member to consider each other necessary and to cherish one another. One of our core values, there it is, we love each other and cherish the fellowship of God's people. I love that word, cherish. That is how each member is to consider every other member. And this starts in our thinking, that we consider one another worthy because of the gospel, that we consider one another necessary because of God's sovereign putting the body together. And our motivation has to be edification. So I don't want you to hear a message like this and then think that it's all about faking nice to one another. Don't do that. We need to love each other with Christ's love, and Christ didn't fake love. It's not about stroking egos. It's not about puffing one another up. Paul talked about this earlier in the letter. Don't puff up, but build up. Build up in the faith. Edify. Do all that you can to pre- prevent divisions or earthly classifications in the body. Do all things to build the body up as one body. Don't exalt one another, but encourage one another. So that's diversity. That's answering the question, what is diversity? And then finally, where does diversity lead? We talked about with uniformity, what it is, where it comes from, where does it lead? We talked about the same things with diversity. Let's talk about where it leads. With uniformity, I said it leads to just two words, more pride. But with diversity, it leads in two great directions. The first direction is unity. Again, this might run counter to our natural thinking. You might think uniformity, that leads to unity. That's not the case. It leads to divisions. But diversity, when rightly viewed, when rightly held in in the gospel, with gospel love, that leads to unity. Uniformity often functions in the name of unity, but uniformity can never achieve unity. Making people conform to extra-biblical standards will never achieve unity, ever. Groups keep trying. Religions keep trying. It won't happen. It can't happen. But when we rightly understand our diversity, we can experience true unity. Look at Paul's words again, starting in verse 24, about the middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That there may be no division, Paul writes, that the same team mentality is maintained. And we see it in sports, we see it in all kinds of ways, that there are different functions, there are different members, there are different giftings, but there's one body, one team, one group, one family. So diversity actually protects against division. It creates unity. It also creates care for one another. You see that at the end of verse 25, that the members may have the same care for one another, and verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Diversity leads to true body care, that the members care for one another, that needs are met, and that oneness in the body is truly experienced. You know, it's one thing to think about the unity we have in Christ or to agree with the unity that we have in Christ, but it's another thing to experience it. 
It's another thing to be at such a place in your life where you need the body to show up and the body shows up. That's what happens when we hold our diversity in high regard, knowing that God is working all things through all of us. And we rely on one another despite our distinctions. And the body shows up and cares for itself. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Some of you have experienced this in profound ways. And it is delightful. It's, it brings peace and joy. We see in verse 26 that the members of the body feel for one another. They care for one another. They experience things together. I read earlier this week, uh, reflecting on Hebrews 4, where it says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but Christ who is tempted in all ways as we were, yet without sin. He's our high priest who can sympathize with us. And one commentator made a note of that saying, He cannot not feel your pain. I like that. And that is to be reflected in the love that the members have for one another. As we all go through the various ups and downs of life, it needs to be said of each one of us that we cannot not feel for one another. Because we so are intertwined, we so have a unity that we're affected by whatever is affecting each one. Members of the body go through highs and lows together. Speaking of the highs, Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, said this. I really like this illustration. He said, in the Olympics, the gold medal is placed around the neck of the fastest athlete, not over his feet. Meaning the neck is rejoicing with the feet. What did the, what did the neck do to win the race, right? The feet worked really hard. But the neck is rejoicing with the feet, celebrating with the feet, sharing in the prize with the feet. Yet we also go through lows together, don't we? Did you know that a toothache can be a sign of cardiac issues or lung issues? Isn't that a wild thing? Now, some of you have a toothache right now. <laughs> I don't want to freak you out, all right? Don't, you don't have to schedule with a cardiologist. But that's just one of the signs that can happen is that your tooth will hurt and You've got something wrong with one of your arteries. Or if you've ever hurt your back, you know that it's not limited to just your back, is it? When your back hurts, your body hurts. Or if you get a disease, if you have cancer, it's not limited to one thing. It affects the whole body. We go through ups together. We go through downs together. And what happens whenever we're looking out for one another this way and when we're feeling for one another this way? Well, we're no longer inward focused. We're no longer creating teams. We're no longer puffing ourselves up. We're no longer demanding that everyone be just like us. We're just content to sit there in a hospital with one another, whether that's for the glorious birth of a child or for a really deep, painful event. We're content to do that for one another and to feel for one another. So unity is the first great direction that diversity leads. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. The second great direction is toward member-driven ministries. Member-driven ministries. And this is as opposed to individual consumerism. We live in a world where we want what we want when we want it. And we can often get it that way. The things we complain about, where we are just wondering, why is, I'm wanting to watch this show on demand, why does that wheel keep spinning? My internet works, what's wrong with this? 
I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. And people can drag that nasty attitude into the church, can't they? And they can look at a church and decide on a church based on what I want. Now, if your desires are good, I'm not talking about that, but if your desires are selfish, that's bad. I don't want to have to help build something. I just want to reap the fruit. I don't want to work the soil. I just want to eat the grapes. That is not true biblical diversity. That's consumerism. When we cherish one another in this diverse body that God has put together, we're going to be involved. There will be member-driven ministry. You see, again, at the end of verse 25, the members have the same care for one another. The members have care for one another. He doesn't list any type of particular gifting, any type of particular person, except for a member of the body, whether that person has an upfront gift or a behind-the-scenes gift, whether that person is on church staff or not. The members have the same care for one another. And this is reflected in our identity. So often in, in the Bible, we're presented with this word fellowship. It's the word koinonia in Greek, our fellowship hall over there. It's called the coin with a K. We didn't spell it that way because we're really dumb or anything like that. Uh, well, we might be really dumb, but we didn't spell it that way because we're dumb. All right, we were smart on that one. Uh, it's a shortening of the Greek word koinonia. That's where we exercise much of our fellowship together in that room. Uh, we exercise it in this room. But that's the fellowship hall, the koinonia room. And that word implies and carries with it participation and sharing and contribution. These are important words. Participation in the body, not just consumerism receiving, but actually participating in the body. And this is our identity as Christians. In that passage that Tyler read for us earlier before corporate prayer, we're reminded that we were brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And here we have fellowship with Him and we have fellowship with one another because we are in the same kingdom together. We participate together. We share together. We contribute together. And that means we each have a ministry from God because He's gifted us for that. This is a very short quote, but I love the way it's worded from John MacArthur. He said, a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. It's a good word. A Christian without a ministry is a contradiction because the members are to care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We care for one another. We suffer together. We rejoice together. That's all an outflow of our identity in Christ, which is by definition an anti-competitive identity. Because apart from Christ, we're weak, we're useless. But in Christ, we're strong. And together, we have all things in Christ. We've been blessed with the love of God in Christ. And that's to be reflected in our love for one another. And love acts, doesn't it? Uniformity says, wait for orders. They'll tell you what to do. It's like the military. They'll tell you what to do. That's uniformity. But diversity, true unity, is moving by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, using your gifting 
in your individual ministries as members of the body to care for one another. And my great desire right now for Orchard Hills Bible Church, my desire for this particular local body is to see more and more member-driven ministry. To see less and less of waiting for instructions. And more and more of being moved by the Spirit of God who has gifted you, who has baptized you, who has placed you in the body, just as He desired. I want to see more and more of that. I want to see more of the experiential unity that we have in Christ, where we show up for one another where you desperately feel your need for the body, and the body shows up. I want more and more of that in this church. More members caring for members, realizing our mutual dependency, discovering our gifts and our ministries in the church, and growing in that agape love, which isn't just nice words. It might, might include nice words, but a lot of times agape love includes words that cut, words that convict, because it's what you need to hear. That's what love does. It gives you what you need. And I want to see more and more of that among us. You think we can do it? You think we can push ourselves into more and more of this love? I think we can. But you got to stop being afraid. You got to stop seeking out certain standards that you can meet to be considered good. There are no checking off of particular boxes with this. It's just love. It's just love, baby. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for the love that You've given us in Christ, displayed in the cross, the power that we've received, displayed in the resurrection, The confidence we have because the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. He empowers us. He has gifted us. And you've placed us in your body just as you've desired. Give us a vision for ministry, a deep care for one another, a deep love that plays itself out in service and sacrifice, that we would honor you because You desire us to live this way as your body, to show the world our love by how we lay down our lives for one another in suffering with one another and with rejoicing with one another. Give us more and more of that experiential unity, that experiential fellowship where we not only have in our head that we are one in Christ, but that we feel in our heart that we are one in Christ. We long for more of that by your Spirit's power and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.